Thanks for joining for another episode of the Techspective podcast. My guest this week is uh, none other than Mr. Jack Daniel. So welcome, Jack. Hey, good to be with you, Tony. Um, I, I'm sure I'm sure you get this all the time, and I'm sure we've had this conversation before. Um, but every time I mention, like, in my house to my family, like, oh yeah, I'm going to be talking to to Jack Daniel. There are the obligatory, uh, you know, whiskey. <laughs> right, right. So my standard response to most uh, most things of that is uh, it is a name and a hobby, too. Although I do tend to go up market there. There are times when a class of Jack Daniels on the rocks is the right thing uh, sometimes. But uh, yeah, actually, uh, it was uh, dad's name. And my dad was named uh, after my uh, uncle's uh, imaginary friend when he was a toddler. And in uh, a century ago in uh, East Texas, um, in and around Athens, Kearns uh, area, um, nobody had heard of the, the Tennessee whiskey at the time. So it was irrelevant when dad got the name. Um, and when I got it, it was just dad wanted the kid to be named after him. So I'm not a junior, but same first name. So it's it's not John. It's actually Jack. And it's a fairly boring story other than I'm really named after my uncle's imaginary friend when he was a toddler. I mean that's that's actually I think a pretty good story uh, to be honest. Um, I think I think it's it's a better it's a better story than being named after the whiskey, unless unless he actually from the Jack Daniel family. Right, right, right. Yeah. So family. he 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 supposedly had uh, no heirs or at least none officially, uh, but yeah. Yep. So anyway, that's that, and that's me, and it's uh, it is fun because between my beard and my height and that name, people tend to remember me and. Uh, I used to be bad with names and I got old and my memory's garbage. So, um, I, I struggle to, with people's names and for some odd reason, people remember me, but, uh, anyway, well, you know, it, 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 it is, a, it's a, it's a powerful combination. Uh, <laughs> in, seeing you in person, um, again, your, your beard, your height, you know, if you happen to have the, the, the top hat, yep. Top hat. Um, if you combine those things with the name, Jack Daniel, it's really hard to remember to, to forget that. Yeah, no, no matter how much you try, no matter how long you go to therapy, you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, one of the things we we you know, kind of started to talk about is, you know, we are at what hopefully feels like the beginning of the of of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and I and I've 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 when it comes to COVID and the and the pandemic. And I've had a couple recent conversations on the podcast about that. You know, it's a it's a obviously a, a popular topic. Um, you know, I, I you know we are all uh, vaccinated. Uh, the only person who in my family who is not fully vaccinated is my uh, daughter who just turned fifteen, and it's because the vaccine only just recently became available for that age range. So she's actually going for her second shot uh, tomorrow. So cool. at that. We will all be fully vaccinated, but, um, you know, but, uh, you know, like, like you were just talking about, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, we're still being cautious. So, so the governor of Texas, uh, and his, uh, stupidity, notwithstanding, um, I'm still wearing a mask when I go out, uh, you know, I'm still, you know, avoiding travel for the most part for now. Um, I might actually have a trip to Boston coming up at the end of June, um, and, uh, I am, I am planning on being at black hat in person. Uh, so the, you know, the company I work for by day, uh, is, is, intends to have a presence there. Um, and I believe, uh, there's 99% that I will be, uh, physically in Las Vegas. Yeah, I, I can see that. You know, one of the things about travel, I do miss travel cause I, uh, used to travel a bit and then I traveled more and then, um, after uh, some changes in my life, uh, after becoming a widower in late 2016, 2017, I lived on the road. Uh, I want to say it was over 300 nights, uh, not in my own bed. And uh, then it slowed down some, but it was it was running and I enjoyed it. And I enjoy travel because it's not uh, typical for me. It's not uh, typical uh, sales travel. I'm not in sales. I'm a community builder. That's what I do. Uh, and so... I get to spend a little bit more time and, you know, enjoy travel. It's it's not a rat race. But now I, you know, I, I haven't been to London in a few years. I love London. I'm not a real fan of big cities, but I love that city. Um, I, I really want to get back to, to Norway. Um, I want to spend some time in Copenhagen when uh, the weather is decent and not cold and miserable. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, I would like to do. But, uh, you know, if you look at the news, people are being idiots on airplanes right now. They're just like I, the other day I glanced at something online and there were three stories in a row about a pilot misbehaving. Um, we'll just leave it there. Um, one airline, uh, you know, the tally of the number of people they've had to ban for not just not wearing masks, but becoming belligerent and starting fights. Um, and then airlines saying, you know, I don't think we're going to serve alcohol. We're not going to resume serving alcohol or we're not going to serve it in the cheap seats, uh, because people are acting so bad and I'm okay with them not serving alcohol on the airplanes. But the fact that they're doing it because people are acting so bad, yeah, let's let people remember how to be decent. Um, but I do miss that. And, you know, I, I've done a, some travel over the years with a compact RV, and that won't get me to London. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to have to get back on an airplane, but I'm not uh, not rushing into that. I, I will not be in Vegas for that. But I'm also older, and uh, I enjoy not being sick. Uh, it, it's just, um, you know, B-Sides and Diana Initiative decided to go virtual. Um, and I'm trying to step back from day-to-day ops on uh, B-Sides Vegas and the team has taken over and they don't need me for much. It's like, yeah, I'll go. I'll be back in Vegas uh, probably in uh, September maybe, but not uh, not for the big the big crowds. Um, I'm not really – I'm not an introvert. Well, I'm sort of one of those introvert extroverts. I need to recharge in small groups, but I'm, I'm fine in large groups. But uh, it's – uh, down on the coast of Georgia and um, uh, the past weekend we were like, Oh, the traffic's terrible. It's we're packed with tourists. And we, uh, we realized that we are coming out of this dark period because we decided we didn't want to go anywhere because uh, people instead of uh, COVID. So that's progress, right? <laughs> yeah. I just want to avoid the dumb mobs. Um, but anyway, yeah, we, we've, we've done some travel and, and I think that, you know, there are things that we're going to see, and we're already seeing the the companies that are pushing people to return to the office already. Um, there's already a backlash on that, and there's there seems to be some uh, really biased reporting and hot takes in both directions about the the productivity of uh, remote workers. And uh, you know that, that's trying to trying to uh, talk about productivity during the past year is not fair to uh, remote work, work from home, because uh, I think Andy Ellis was the first one who put it this, this bluntly. He's like, nobody's working from home. We're working from crisis centers, especially if you have kids at home. And so trying to do that also, you know, you look at the numbers of uh, how much time and therefore money you saved uh, by not commuting, by not traveling, by, you know, eating at home instead of going out for lunch, uh, the, the money saved, you know, they talk about the things that people did while they're on the job. Well, it's, you know, if, if your laptop's open 14 hours a day, your work laptop is open 14 hours a day and you run out to, um, to pick up the, uh, the curbside pickup for dinner, um, that that's not detracting from what you've done. Um, so people really got got wound up about it and people have taken sides and uh, I don't know, but I think a lot of people have now discovered how to efficiently work from home and, um, you know, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see it shake out. It, it was interesting early on. I did a, a, a simple survey and got several hundred people to answer about how in particularly in cybersecurity we were doing as an industry and you know, uh, compared to a lot of other industries, very few people lost their jobs, very few people lost hours. And I was really surprised at how many companies did a good job of communicating in the early days. But it's worn on and everybody's a little tired of it. Well, true. And, and you know, I, and I feel like, you know, we went from, you know, initially it was, hey, we're, there's this thing we're all, we're all going to work from home. But I think almost every company viewed that as more of like a hurricane response kind of thing. Like we're going to go home for two weeks and then we'll, we'll get back to normal. And so there was no long-term plan when they started. Right. And after a month, they started going, oh shit, this is, this is going to, we're in this for the long haul. And then they had to kind of rethink the the strategy. And then I think early on, there was a lot of, a, a lot of, you know, like you said, of, of saying, you know what, productivity is actually pretty good. Productivity has gone up, uh, you know, um, 
you know, maybe this is a good thing, but to your point and to Andy's point, uh, it's not necessarily a valid measure. I mean, I know Microsoft in particular has, has put like a, a couple different studies on, you know, what they've, you know, the, the metrics they've gathered uh, yep. over the last year. And, and I'm not saying that, that that's, that's, that's worthless. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's okay to look at that data, but I agree that it's not a valid re representation of right. work right. from home um, per se. So it's more like as we move forward over the next year or over the, you know, the, you know, the next two years, then maybe you look at that data and say, okay, well, how does this, how does this measure up? Yeah. And I would encourage people to, to look at the data themselves because there've been some uh, not good takes based off of that data. Um, so, you know, dig, dig back to the, the raw, the raw data and, and there's stuff to be learned from that, but yeah, we, we learned, you know, one of the, the only, and it wasn't bad, but it was the only not good um, area and no one should be surprised by this as far as that survey I did um, last year was that uh, people felt that managers weren't equipped and trained to do uh, management of a remote workforce. They felt the management was um, unprepared and then not supported by the organizations. That was a minority opinion, but it was the the largest of the the negative opinions was that um, you know, managers, and, and that's the thing that we struggle with in every industry. It is certainly not unique to us. I mean, I ran into it in the car business when I was a mechanic. You know, people get people get promoted into jobs that they're um, not competent for and they get, they get stuck there. And so we've promoted people and we put uh, managers who were uh, maybe not, you know, some of them were great, some were not. Uh, when I first migrated into management, I was terrible. It took me a while to realize how bad I was and I worked on it. And I'm really glad I don't manage people anymore. Um, I did I did my time, but we, you know, have people that uh, we've not taught how to uh, hire, <laughs> you know, a whole other topic. We have done a, a, a less than ideal job of teaching people how to be hiring managers. Um, and so we have not uh, enabled them to be a good uh, manager of remote workforces um, in some cases. In many cases, people figured it out. But, yeah, it's it's been an interesting experience. Uh, things are uh, returning to normal. As people have said, though, you know, it doesn't have to go back to the way it was before. It's possible that we could make some changes and maybe even make things a little better um, about, you know, flexible working uh, times and spaces, uh, the, the amount of um, – the amount of commuting, the amount of travel. Um, I know that a lot of companies are looking at um, travel and thinking, well, you know, it's kind of nice uh, not spending however many um, trillions get spent annually on travel. It's like, eh, that was nice to not have that. Uh, maybe we should think a little bit more about how we spend. Um, and, and I really believe in the, the power of face-to-face -face conversations, but um, a lot of business travel um, I don't know. The, I think a fair amount of business travel uh, could be rethought. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I agree that I think I think you know it, it's a, it's already a trite term, but I think you know we're we're going into the quote unquote new normal. It's yes, we'll get back to normal ish, but we have an opportunity to kind of redefine that a little bit about well, what what are, what are we going to accept as normal, and I think I think most companies probably will. I mean, every most of the companies I've talked to have said they are going to adopt some sort of hybrid model, or you know, and be much more flexible about working from home, and have kind of like a hoteling kind of an arrangement where, like, you know, you may not not have an assigned desk, but there's some place you can go if you want to go into work. Right. There's a conference room. You can book the conference, room, but you're not required to be there. Yeah, and it really depends on the role. I mean, the uh, so the the cooks at the uh, at the restaurant you got to take out from they have to show up in the kitchen, right? In our field, you know, to pick on one that's a, that's an easy example um, in in support operations, um, when you bring new people into support, which for a lot of us is an interesting, you know, is is a viable way to get into the field. Uh, <clears throat> the new people in support need to be where they can put their heads together with uh, uh, more experienced people. Does it have to be every day of the week? I don't know, but you need to, I can see a pretty strong argument for um, support people when they first join a, an organization 
being somewhere where uh, the resource is readily available, managers can help them get up on their up to speed, make sure that they're actually helping the customers. And then as you drift off, once you know your stuff, if you have internet connectivity and a telephone and a computer, and maybe not a telephone, depending on the level of support you're offering, you, you can do your job anywhere. And you know, there's there's not everybody needs to be there. Um, it's it sales, as I mentioned, for travel. It uh, is often easier to close deals um, and, you know, in person, sales engineering, the people that do the, the demos and proof of concepts and work with engineering teams to, to install and test systems, they kind of need to show up at the SOC uh, to plug those boxes in or whatever they're doing to make sure it works. But do we need to do all of it? I don't know. And you know, if you want to, I don't know. I, I would, I would really like uh, more thought to go into the amount of uh, travel we do, because a lot of people ha uh, travel extensively uh, and hate it, um, because it's just miserable. They want to be home, and it's like, yeah, maybe we should make people a little less miserable. You know, crazy talk. I know. Sorry for being idealistic. No one expects that from me. I actually had, you know, I, I this is actually a battle I had when I was working in cybersecurity with EDS back in like 2003, four, because I, ha I went, I went into the office, I had a desk at the, you know, I had my, my cubicle at the, at the office building. Um, initially when I went home, it was because my internet connection was better than theirs. It was sort of one of those cases of the, uh, the, the cobbler's children have no shoes, you know, where <laughs> we did infrastructure for other companies, but ours sucked. And, I needed to get stuff done, and I was like, you know what? This is this is infuriating. I'm going home where I can actually connect to the internet, and then I just kept doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it. Um, and if you are paid well enough, or have been doing it long enough, and built it up slowly, uh, your home office starts to be um, a technology nest and really tuned to you. Which even if you have. Uh, an actual office where you are and the company doesn't uh, skimp on the hardware that they give you. Uh, it never feels quite the same. Um, although, you know, my, my previous gig, when I did go into an office, they were uh, really cool. They were pretty good about it, but um, you know, I'm sitting here and I can switch gears. I it's to switch gears to do this um, is no big deal because I pull one arm down that's got a mic on it and, drop one of the USB interfaces in to, onto the desk and I'm done. And then as soon as we're done here, I'm going to push this mic boom arm out of the way and uh, get back to what I was doing because I, it's not a disruption. It's not, uh, you know, my, my, my home workspace and actually my mobile workspace, my, you know, my, my rolling office, which uh, can uh, take me anywhere that roads go. Um, it's almost as efficient once I uh, once I get it set up, and it's like ah here there we go I'm I am happy here too, and well, at the end of the day I'm I'm closer to the tequila. <laughs> yeah, well at some point then some someone new some some new exec came into EDS I don't remember if it was the yeah you know, I think it was like the CFO, and took a look at like the amount of money they were spending for uh, rent for leasing. And the amount of people that were working from home and they, so they were like, you know what, we're, we're, we're canceling all of the work from home agreements. We need people to be in the seats because we're paying for this space. And they were, they were contractually obligated to pay, pay for the space. And, and I had the argument at the time where I was like, all right, well, look, as it stands right now, you know, I roll out of bed at five, six in the morning, I jump on my computer. I'm there all day. You know, like you said, you know, the laptops open 14 hours a day. I'm literally sitting here working 14 to 16 hours a day. Now, you know, am I full bore working the whole 16 hours? No. But when you make me come into work and now I have an hour and a half commute there and an hour and a half commute home and I have to actually get out of my pajamas and like shower and shave in the morning. So you got to tack on another half hour to an hour of, of prep time. And, you know, at that point, you're literally only going to get me from eight to five. Right. Right. And, and you're talking about a CFO who doesn't understand the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. You are now disqualified from your role. At 5.01 p.m. when you say, Tony, can you? I'm going to say, oh, let me stop you right there. <laughs> right. right. I'll see you at eight in the morning. Right. They, 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 CFOs who don't understand uh, economics uh, and don't understand social economics. That's the thing that often happens is 
not understanding the social economics. Um, well, because the, the, okay, here's the other part of it too: is there, you know, so there there are managers, there are there are executives who feel like, well, if you're not sitting at your desk, then how do I know you're working or whatever? Like, I need you to be here 40 hours a week, physically present. And I would say, okay, but when I'm at my desk in a cube. There are so many more distractions than at home. I mean, I, I, I realize that varies depending on your home situation, but, um, you know, the guy in the next cube over wants to talk about, you know, the football game. And this guy over here wants to talk about the news headlines. And then, you know, someone wants to, you know, you, you're going out to lunch with the uh, coworkers and all of these things. They're all interruptions. And where I felt like being physically present from eight to five. So you know, that's nine hours plus a lunch break, you know, or minus a lunch break. So you have this full eight hour day of being quote unquote at work. In my opinion, there was only two to three at best hours of productivity of, of actually being able to get shit done. Yep. And at home, not only do I feel like I, you know, because I have, I have way more time and I don't have the commute and I don't have to, you know, do all these other things. But then when I when I get up, instead of getting up to go have a you know meaningless uh, conversation about the 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 weekend's football game with with a coworker, I can go throw the laundry in, you know, I can go do the dishes, and and those are things that when you go physically to work, they're still waiting for you when you get home. Um, I mean, I just saw somebody post a thing, uh, you know, it was some kind of meme, uh, you know, going around on on Facebook or Twitter about. Oh, you know, we work five days a week so we can, you know, have, you know, have time to ourselves on the weekend, quote unquote. And they said, but no, nobody has time to yourself on the weekend. What you have on the weekend is the entire to-do list of all the things you couldn't do during the week that you now have to accomplish in 48 hours before you do it all over again. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, like I said, there's some jobs. If you work in support and your shift is eight to five, uh, you have to be on call at that point in time. If they need you in the office, I don't know, it varies. But, uh, you know, there are other things that, particularly in our field, where a lot of us work globally, if you want me to, um, if you want me to work with the team in India or the team in Australia or, you know, even the teams in Germany or where, you know, Western Europe, um, if I'm working from home, it's, uh, if, you know, the, the time and date meeting planner, figure out what time it is. And I'm like, ah, all right, well, um, I'll leave my camera off because I'll be in my PJs, but I will happily join that meeting to make sure we hear that. Or, right. oh, I'll do a presentation at, at you know, uh, 11 at night or two in the morning for um, somebody in Singapore uh, because all I have to do is uh, roll out of bed or stay up and, um, you know, pants optional if I'm sitting at my desk and, you know, we can, we can actually deal with, uh, schedule disruptions, um, easier I mean, for those of us who are lucky enough to have jobs that can do that. If you, if, if you're the guy who's changing the oil in my car, um, he's not going to sit in, in his house, in his jammies. Um, right. You know, that, that doesn't work for everyone. Um, but for those of us, for people, it does, it's like, it makes sense. Well, that's actually uh, things that was sort of exposed by the by the pandemic is is that sort of classist you know we are we are somewhat privileged in the in the roles right. that we are in that it was not a problem for me at all i was already working from home so all i had to do is do that more and <laughs> and you know and and i have the i have the luxury of being able to make pretty good money sitting here at this desk in my office at home right. and you have all these people who are stocking grocery store shelves and making food at the restaurant and changing oil and fixing cars and, and all those things. They, they don't have that option and are woefully sort of underpaid and undervalued for what, you know, like I, and, and, and what's, what's really, really disheartening is I feel like as we start to come out of this, people switched back so quickly. We went from right. using them as heroes and, and, and frontline workers to, under tipping them and 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 being assholes at restaurants again in like a, a heartbeat. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, it, it, as a former mechanic, um, the whole unskilled labor or semi-skilled labor is uh, nonsense. Um, it, it makes me crazy, uh, and it's 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 like being 
the people that are dismissive of people who can communicate well and are empathetic and can um, understand the perspective of other people all being dismissed as, oh, those are just soft skills. We work in tech. It's like, uh, well, you can't actually communicate, which is why, you know, I, I have budget and you don't. Um, so uh, I don't know. You know we're, we're dismissive of things, but that's one of those, I don't know, it's kind of human nature. Um, whatever it is we do is important and difficult and uh, everything that everybody else does isn't until you or, or unless you um, are either empathetic by default or uh, learn some empathy because usually because life uh, kind of beats you up pretty hard and you start looking around while you're uh, being trialed, tromped on and you think, oh, you know what? I'm not the only one who's being ground into the dust. Maybe I should be less of a jerk to the uh, the guy that uh, mows the lawn or the, the, the people that serve me food or whatever it is. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said, I, I think the people that are, no matter what your politics are, I think you and I line up pretty closely on a lot of things. I mean, my own personal politics are to the left of my own personal politics most of the time, if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, the people that, that have taken this out on the, the poor folks that are just trying to do their jobs, you know, the, the, the people that are the, taking a swing at the Walmart greeter who says, hey, welcome to Walmart. Uh, please remember your mask. And, you know, th th do you think that person wants to stand at Walmart and say that? No, um, just just play along. Come on. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. We We have an opportunity. Um, to be nice. And I was really kind of disappointed the way a lot of things happened with this, uh, with the pandemic situation, because uh, after the horrors of 9-11, those of us that have been around that long remember that, uh, you know, for a while, everybody, and it, it was, for some people, it was forced. I'm not going to be naive about it, but a lot of people were a lot nicer. They were just like, oh, huh, here, let me hold the door for you. Let me remember to say please and thank you. There was there was there was a at least briefly a united front. You know, it's it's the you know, whatever whatever partisan issues you had yesterday suddenly seemed meaningless because we were all in this together. And you would think that the that a global pandemic would do the same thing, not only at least on a national level, if not a global level. But instead, we had like people kind of like dug their feet into their partisan trenches. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, um, the polarization is uh, depressing. And, I mean, that's a whole another rabbit hole for uh, in person, probably with um, strong drink. But uh, yeah, it, the polarization is difficult. And, and it's it's something that pains me when I see uh, polarization uh, that that starts to permeate day to day stuff um, and, and, and permeates our own communities. Um, if people choose to go to Black Hat because they need to or DEFCON because they need or want to, that's that's cool. That's their decision. Hopefully they're fully vaccinated and they're going to be uh, safe while traveling. There are some risks there. Um, adults should make those decisions. I won't be there, but that doesn't mean I'm judgmental of anyone who does choose to go, except I will be judgmental of the people that fake uh, vaccination information and, and lie to the goons at DEFCON about being safe to be there. Um, but, you know, it's you have to be like, oh, well, you know, different risk analysis. Um, yeah, although I do cling tightly to my title as the world's oldest millennial, um, chronologically, I am older than that. And that informs my um, my risk analysis of, uh, you know, what I what I do with travel and and personal health and personal safety. When the when the CDC relaxed the, the guidelines and said, hey, you know what, if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. And then and then the governor of Texas, you know, said, OK, well, we're going to lift the mask mandate and I'm going to go a step further and, and ban any cities or counties from from imposing any mask mandates. Um, initially, I was like, well, you know, what are you doing? You know, now, now all of a sudden, all, all the people who are not vaccinated can now just walk around and say they're vaccinated and not wear a mask. And someone pointed out to me, they said, yeah, but they're already doing that. So it right. didn't really change anything. Right, right. And I think there's a certain amount of social engineering going on there, um, you know, by saying, hey, you know what, we can relax um, e even as there are concerns about variants and other 
um, situations by saying, if you're fully vaccinated, you can relax a lot with the masks and gatherings. It's an encouragement to be vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it was it was communicated well, but I it, unfortunately a lot of this hasn't been communicated well, and luckily uh, miscommunication and poor risk analysis is not something that uh, affects us in cybersecurity. Oh wait. <laughs> I guess it is a related topic, but, you know, I know that one of the things that is, has, you know, for years been a, a cause of yours um, is kind of the, the, the stress and burnout and mental health within the cybersecurity industry. And, and, and it is, a, it's a, I mean, not to say that it's totally unique amongst industries, but it, it is a tough industry. Like you, you know, especially if you're, if you're, you know, an analyst in a sock or whatever, like literally you're waking up every day to fight a battle that can't be right. won. Right. And, and, you know, heaven forbid you're, you're uh, doing incident response. I mean, if you're in DFIR, it, it just grinds people up. Um, uh, you know, I've got, I'm sitting here, there are two books on my desk right now. Uh, HBR has, Harvard Business Review has a, a book on beating burnout. I also have the, one of the original uh, titles on it from decades ago, which was uh, The Truth About Burnout which was Chris, Dr. Christina Maslock and Dr. Michael Leiter, who did the foundational work. You know, there, there are some real challenges with uh, burnout. First of all, if somebody is in a bad place mentally, whatever definition you want to do, and I say, do you feel burnt out? They're going to say yes. And we instantly know what that means. And on the other hand, there's a clinical definition that involves three key elements of depersonalization or cynicism, depending on the nature of your job, uh, exhaustion and personal efficacy. And so it's a word that we all understand, but some people feel burnt out that don't meet the clinical definition. And the clinical definition, interestingly, is usually misused um, because an individual diagnosis, if I said to you, hey, you're, you meet the clinical definition of um, burned out, um, that's misusing the clinical diagnosis because it's actually about the environment. Um, Dr. Maslach talks about pickles. And even if you like pickles, did the cucumber ask to be thrown in the brine? Right? No. What comes out is, even if you like pickles, who asked the cucumber? So it's the environment that, that makes that happen. And that's the, the, you know, that's where even the World Health Organization has gotten this wrong. But the, there are some things that we can all understand it. In our field, there haven't been any large-scale studies, but there have been small-scale studies that I think are informative, if not statistically um, provable or anything. You know, they're, they're, I know of, you know, one that I was involved in was 127 respondents. I know of some others that are, that were from a few dozen to several dozen. Um, and there were some trends that uh, seemed to be consistent. And one of them was that the cynicism is is very high. And it's, it's really easy to see why. I think that to be good at security, you need to be skeptical. You need to question things. You need to be questioning what you're told. You need to question why things are the way they are. You need to question whether or not this thing that you've just observed is appropriate or inappropriate if it's malicious or benign. Um, so you need a good dose of skepticism. And after you do it for a while, um, we're a cost center, not a profit center, generally speaking. And therefore, we tend to be underfunded. Um, we are still battling the issue of being the department of no instead of being enablers. Um, so there are a whole bunch of things that make it easy to get pushed from a healthy dose of skepticism to an unhealthy level of cynicism. And, you know, the workloads, um, the exhaustion is really a challenge. If you're in a situation that doesn't let you excel, you don't feel like you're personally effective. And that that is a combination for really bad things. We also tend to work alone, um, working alone, not in teams. And even if we're in a team, it's, you know, I don't know. I know that some aren't, but uh, a lot of times teams are actually just a group of individual contributors. They're not really teams. And that isolation um, 
you know, when you're a kid, you couldn't go jump at the, at the camp, whatever camp it was. You didn't jump into the pool or lake alone. You always had your buddy with you, right? <laughs> it's things, uh, the, the military, uh, you know, they make teams of certain sizes because we're hardwired. Uh, when things get ugly, the, um, the prefrontal cortex, uh, gets ignored by the amygdala and that's the way you act. And, uh, certain unit sizes are how we work, um, and how we take care of each other. And, uh, but we do this and we all have an ego and feel that we're, um, we're special and all of these things kind of contribute to that. And it's great to see that, you know, RSA and other conferences and other places are really starting to recognize it. I'd like to see, um, a little more honest conversation about this, about the organizational structure, because as a manager, um, if you don't do whatever you can to take care of your people, uh, you're going to have to do their job for them and you're gonna have to hire more people, which is a nightmare. Uh, you know, that's, that's a real challenge. And one of the things that, uh, I've seen a few times in our industry is, you know, software in general, not just in security, we, we get on the venture capital round and then we try to go IPO or acquisition and on various points in that path, the organization behaves in ways which don't make sense unless you understand that your pre-IPO phase filed, but not yet IPO'd phase, immediate post-IPO phase, there's Wall Street logic. And you can put that in air quotes or scare quotes if you want, but Wall Street logic is different. And we don't train managers about what they're going through. And so a lot of managers don't train and explain to their people, because if you don't feel like you're in control, uh, it's a real recipe for burnout. And if you aren't in control, but at least you understand what's going on, that helps a lot. It's like, oh, this this really seems dumb. And uh, for you and me, this is dumb. But here's what the Wall Street analysts look at, or here's what an equity partner looks at as they think about act, uh, investing in us. This is what, you know, series C round, we need to look like this. Um, you know, there are things that we don't explain. There are things that a lot of us don't understand uh, ourselves. And we, when we don't understand it, we get confused, we get angry. Um, and none of that helps. And just talking about it, it's like, you don't, you don't have to dwell on it. Um, you know, as people often point out, we're not getting, we're not getting shot at. Um, but, uh, we are, we're grinding, we are grinding a lot of people up. So. Well, so first I want to jump back on one part when you were talking about kind of the clinical definition of, of burnout. Um, it made me think of how society in general likes to co-opt terms like, you know, somebody will say, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I just always have to tie my left shoe before my right shoe. And then someone will be like, oh, that's OCD. Well, it's like, no, you're just doing a quirky thing. You know, like, <laughs> you know, you're, you're not clinically OCD or people talk about being like on the spectrum and just kind of like casually dismiss that as, oh, he's on the spectrum. It's like, well, is he really, or are you just kind of abusing the autism spectrum to make a point? Right. 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 We abuse those. And, and unfortunately, like I said, burnout, um, has clinical definition, but also it's, it's just instantly something that you can identify with. Right. You know, so it's, it's not like, um, naming a disease that is, uh, unique. If, if you say to somebody that, uh, you have, um, you know, pick one, you, you have, uh, 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 liver cancer. If you have a clear cell cancer of the liver, that's very specific, right? Um, I hope nobody has that. That's really bad, by the way. Uh, but when you have a term that gets abused, and this happens with things like, oh, I have the flu. It's like, you know what? You're up and moving. You probably don't have a real flu. You probably have a bad cold. Because if you've had one of the real flus. <clears throat> yeah, um, when I had the flu. Yeah. You know, it, but we say ah, it's cold and flu season. Let's not lump them together. And so these common terms add to confusion. And, you know, again, uh, it's not like we have, you know, I've said this a few times. If you want to have some fun and then you'll start crying. It'll be like, you know, the little the meme of the, the little boy that's being interviewed and he starts out smiling. And by the end of the, the 12 second clip, he's sobbing. Um, have fun by going around, 
I won't name it, but some big commercial vendor event in the vendor expo area and ask the people that are screaming at you and trying to scan your badge and spam you uh, to explain words like threat, risk, vulnerability, exploit in in real world terms. Make it simple. You can oversimplify it and then we can tighten up from there. But just tell me what's the difference between a threat and a risk and an exploit and a vulnerability. So to how about mitigation? And, and you know what you'll get will be nonsense and make you really unhappy. And then every now and then somebody's going to be like, "All right, let me explain it to you uh, in in really simple terms, and we can elaborate from there." And you'll be like, "Okay." I wish I had budget because I'd buy from you for knowing what you're talking about. Well, okay. So a couple, couple things there. Number one is, uh, and I, I just talked about this recently on the podcast, but when, you know, RSA last year was the last time we, you know, the last actual event I, I went to before uh, the pandemic. And I went there with a project in mind um, from a marketing perspective to walk the show floor and kind of make a top 20 list of buzzwords. And my goal was partially to just identify the buzzwords, but it was partially to um, basically kind of show like different companies that do totally different things are still using the same buzzwords. And that like, you know, if, if you go in there as a customer, as a, as a non-security person trying to, trying to buy a product or understand what is out there product wise, RSA and Black Hat are not, the, the show floor is not the place to do that. Because everyone's using the same buzzwords, and then I came, I, I came back with that list so that in my capacity as a freelance writer and 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 marketing consultant to companies, uh, similar to the exercise you just described, I basically would go to companies that I'm working with and say, look, here are these twenty buzzwords. I need you to be able to explain to me what you do without using these buzzwords. Now, I understand why in your marketing and why, you know, on your website, why you have to use the buzzwords. It's sort of like a, it's, at some point it becomes table stakes and you, you kind of can't not use them because everyone else is using them and it looks bad if you don't. But at the very least, you should be able to tell, tell me in English without these buzzwords what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Just what is it you do? What problem do you solve? Um, is another, you know, it's like, I, I don't care what you do, but what problem do you solve? Uh, sure. I don't know. It starts off with, well, we do artificial intelligence and machine learning on the blockchain. Then I'll be like, all right, yeah. well, right. We're done. <laughs> We're done. And, um, uh, there are some, you know, there's some real work that's being done in machine learning, in artificial intelligence, in human machine teaming, in things that make sense. And, uh, it's the the screaming uh, just overtakes all of the the more rational stuff. Right. It, it, it's um, it, it's crazy, it, and you know you, you look at it and you think we still don't understand. We you know the, the various biases and algorithms have been shown repeatedly. The the abusability of machine learning and artificial intelligence has been shown. Um, artificial intelligence's struggles with natural language processing are you know, go back half a century almost now. Um, so there are challenges there, but there are also people who say, you know, there, there are things that machines can do quickly that you don't have to do. And, and we've figured out what some of those are. And now you can use your precious human resources. And I'm not saying that ironically, but the resources of people who know your systems and know your environment and know your space those resources, those people are precious to your organization, whether or not you treat them that way. And let's not waste their time. If you want to have a conversation about um, machine learning and artif artificial intelligence that starts with the premise of we're going to solve a problem for you uh, without understanding what my problems are, you're wasting both of our time. But if you say that we have some, we do some cool stuff, um, and what it does is it reduces the amount of time 
your people waste on a project or on a problem. It's like, okay, let's talk. Right. But that's, that's not sexy. The, uh, that's not as sexy as we solve it. Right. You know, anybody, anybody that claims to solve something, you really kind of worry about, I think, unless it's a really simple problem. Yeah. Well, so the other thing I was going to mention, which brings us back to the, to, to the, the burnout side of this conversation is, you know, there's this sort of bravado or badge of honor that people have about, um, you know, uh, I, I have, you know, eight hours of back to back to back meetings, you know, today or, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, put in 70 hours this week or it's been a year and a half since I took a vacation as if as if that's supposed to be impressive. You know, like like I, I here I am, I'm 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 such a dedicated worker. And I feel like that's a, that's ingrained at a very early age because, you know, my kids, you know, when they it's like whether you know, my, my we homeschool, but, you know, like kids in public school, like they pass out awards for like, well, you didn't miss a day of school or, you know, or, or you know, my, you know, when my daughter, you know, my daughter dances and the dance studio would, you know, not, not the one she's at now, but when she was younger would give out awards for, you know, that at the end of the year, like you didn't miss any class. And it's like, OK, yeah, but some of the people who got that award showed up to class like visibly sick. <laughs> right, and right, and made and, and are responsible for some of the other people not being there. Yeah, no, we uh, we tend to work really stupid. It is interesting that in in some circles, it's starting to become a badge of honor and a bragging right for some executives. And it, I don't know that Silicon Valley is it's penetrated there, but uh, you hear people uh, talking about the importance of getting a good night's rest and. You know, back to something Andy Ellis said in a presentation, man, many years ago to a small security user group in Boston, um, NASIG, uh, he was talking about how Akamai did um, develop their incident response program. And they do, at the, you know, at the time they did this thing where uh, you couldn't be on, you couldn't be lead on the project for over a certain amount of time before you had to take a break. And then you could come back for a few more hours and then you had to stand down. You had to, you couldn't be back on that uh, incident response project for a certain number of hours. Like, I don't remember what it was, but at least eight. Um, but they also built in communication so that one person leaving wouldn't break it. And right. and that's not a small company, but it was designed so that, um, you know, if you, if you've never done, if you've done system admin, if you've done the overnight nonsense, if you've slogged away at it, uh, you've probably done that thing where you just give up, you know, 20, 26 hours into fighting, uh, you know, a melted down exchange five, five instance. And you finally pass out uh, on an uncomfortable couch in the office and you wake up four and a half, five hours later, you've you got a little REM sleep and you wake up and the light bulb goes off. Really? Oh, yeah, that happened three years ago. I'm going to go replace that DLL. I, Damn. Right. You, you let your brain work. Uh, the ability to sleep, the, the productivity you get, the productivity that falls off so fast after a certain number of hours. And, you know, it, it goes back to a whole bunch of things. But brain science is we still know so little about the brain and uh, we know a lot. And it's amazing. I was when I was, you know, much, much younger than I am today uh, and playing uh, King's Quest on the computer. And I could not figure out what to do next. I got to a certain point. I just hit a wall and I played it for like a week. Didn't make any progress. And I finally just gave up. And like two weeks later, I just had this epiphany. My brain just wait and we said, wait a minute. You know, if you go over here, that's the solution. And it, and it was, you know, so it's like subconsciously, my brain was like still working on this problem for two weeks and, and managed to figure it out when I wasn't even when I wasn't even focused on it. Um, but the other thing I was going to say is, you know, there's a model that that I think works so well. Like my time in the Air Force was one of the one of the nice things about it was I worked in a shop that was 24 seven, you know, and a lot of a lot of my time I was on the like midnight to 7 a.m. shift or, you know, I'd be on the 4 p.m. to midnight shift or whatever. But whatever I was working on didn't stop when my shift ended some other team came in and took over where where whatever you know there was turnover you know you you always gave turnover to the next shift you said hey here's where i'm at 
I'm working on this. I can't figure out why this thing is not working. And, you know, there was notes that you would take and you'd pass it off to the next guy. So you'd come back 16 hours later and, you know, figure out where it was. But at least it wasn't all on you and it wasn't waiting for you. And that extended to vacation where like after Desert Storm, I hadn't I, I was stationed in England. I hadn't been home for a while. I, 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 I did Desert Shield and Desert Storm in Turkey. And after that, I had, had all this accrued vacation and I was like, you know what, I'm going to go back. I'm going back to Detroit. And I took a month off, you know, and, and went went home and, and hung out in, in the States. And my work didn't pile up for a month. And, you know, and, and meanwhile, I was just talking with a, a friend the other day on, on Tuesday after the three day weekend about like, well, hey, how was your weekend? And he was like, well, great, except for that, you know, now I just have an extra day's worth of shit to to cram in today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's it. I mean, when I, back when I was a mechanic, I uh, had a brain for uh, diagnostics. Um, I, I worked on some interesting vehicles um, and I ended up um, uh, being the diagnostic guy and I had, I got all of the ugly jobs and that was when computers had only been cars for a few years and it was, uh, it was a mess. And, uh, you know, I always, I learned then I, kept the notepad by the bed and I, I can't fix the car once I've driven home. Right. I can't put my hands on it, but I wake up in the morning or I'd wake up at three or four in the morning and be like, Oh, I should check this and uh, scribble a note down. And I, you know, I came up with those things after rest, you know, I might've spent in, you know, nine or 10 hours in the shop, like just trying everything I could think of. And then I'd get some rest and, like, oh, hey, why don't I try this? Um, yeah. And also, you know, that that team thing, if you're handing off a job, you're like, I'm fighting you. This is where I am on this project. Uh, it's going really well, except for this one thing. And somebody says, did you check this or have you done this? You're like, duh. It's like, all right, uh, there we go. You know, it, it's uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, Humans, we're weird. I wanted I wanted to start to wind down, but I also want, I wanted to point out kind of what a small world uh, cybersecurity is. So, like you know, you've mentioned Andy Ellis a couple of times. Um, I just had Andy Ellis uh, as as a guest on the podcast like two weeks ago. Um, the podcast episode that I I, I uh, released earlier today uh, was with Wolf Gerlich, who mentions you. In our podcast, he's telling a story and and tells a story about uh, when you were when when you were into blacksmithing and a kind of presentation you gave or a conversation that you had about you know that it that that it, it's a unique piece and you can't you know, it's not a oh the the uh, the the hand forged lock story yes um yeah. and 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 then in in the same sort of it's a small world. Uh, I also uh, recorded earlier this week an episode uh, with Ron Gula, uh, you know, who, who we yeah. are familiar with. So it's like it's just kind of funny how yeah, like, you, Ron, Ron and I uh, have have known each other for I don't know, probably almost fifteen years now. And you know, I, I, I uh, went back and forth when I was at Astaro before joining Tenable, and we're like, hey, you got anything open? And Ron's like, nothing good for you. I don't know. Then Ron and Ping me like, or Jack Hufford is his co-founder um, with Renault. Uh, be like, you should come work for us. And I'm like, I'm really happy where I am right now. And then one day, about 10 years ago, almost exactly, uh, Ron said, you want to try a thing again? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Um, but yeah, no, I've, I've known Ron. It's um, at a certain point, at a certain age. I think uh, the younger folks, the, the, the industry has spread more. But, uh, you know, we certainly have these these connections. Right. Um, I was on a social gathering um, the other night and uh, uh, Josh Corman was there and, and uh, Weld Pond was there. Uh, Chris Weisopel. Um for those of us old enough, he's probably always going to be Weld Pond. But anyway, Chris Weisopel and, you know, Hobbit joined and a couple other people. I'm like, wow, these are. Yeah. These are people. And, you know, it's like I used to work. Uh, Ron had hired uh, Marcus Ranham, and uh, a lot of us know who that is. And you say Marcus Ranham to, to newer folks and they don't know him. But um, <laughs> when, when Wolf brought up the, the blacksmithing story and he said he said, yeah, Jack Daniels told me this blacksmithing story. And my response to him was, 
I didn't know Jack Daniel did blacksmithing. If you tell me blacksmithing and cybersecurity, the first person I think of is Marcus Raynham. Yeah, well, he's doing bladesmith stuff now. But yeah, there there are others. There are a handful of people. We we have to have our ex uh, our uh, we have to have our escapes. I saw a comic the other day. Somebody posted last week, which was how to become a gardener, and it was get a CS uh, in or get a, a PhD in CS, become a uh, developer, uh, go to work for one of the big houses, get burnt out, become a gardener. Um, <laughs> Well, it's funny. My, you know, my story with Tenable was was actually very similar, and I was I was I was obviously there much shorter period than than you are, and you're still there. But uh, I had originally interviewed, you know, ten years ago, or, or uh, yeah, at least eight years ago, uh, uh, with uh, John Brody for a, you know a specific role, and and you know, and and it just didn't work out. They you know they wanted me to you know move up to to you know Baltimore or whatever, and uh, that didn't pan out, and. I had another conversation later that uh, didn't pan out because they wanted me to, you know, give up everything I was doing on the side and only do only do that. And I was like, nah, I I, I kind of like what I've built for myself. And and it was the third time's a charm kind of thing where yeah. you know uh, an opportunity came along and it was funny because I I you know I heard about the opportunity and uh, Ron happened to be in San Antonio at a presentation. And, uh, you know, I, I, and I, and I already knew Ron as well. And so I, I, I contacted Ron and I said, Hey, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this, this opening that you guys have at Tenable. Um, and he was like, well, why don't you come over? We'll have dinner. And so I, I made the like, you know, three and a half hour drive from Houston over to San Antonio to sit down with Ron and have some dinner and talk about the role. And, and, and we agreed that, uh, he was fine with me doing what I do on the side, as long as I, you know, give give tenable the focus uh they deserve yep. uh you know during the week yep. and uh you know the rest is history oh, yeah <laughs> yep uh it wasn't dinner with me it was uh, it was uh, starbucks in washington dc but we were both uh pressed for time at the time but anyway yeah no and that's one of those um relationship building things and i don't want to seem pessimistic, but it doesn't seem to be as easy to do that these days as it was uh, six, eight, ten years ago or more. Um, <clears throat> things uh, things tend to move fast, but it's one of those reasons why you, you know, stay in touch with people. And it, it doesn't have to be mercenary. You know, there are people that do networking to be mercenary, but the number of uh, casual conversations that have led to interesting places that I've heard about. Um, that have happened at B-Sides are one of the reasons that I put all the effort I do into B-Sides because the, the number of success stories from, you know, I, I did this and, I, you know, I met this person at this B-Sides or I, uh, I gave a talk at B-Sides that led to this project, which led to this job, you know. So, um, yeah, yeah, just uh, stay in touch with people and, and, and knowing who's out there um, and uh, letting people know that you're, um, doing cool stuff. That's always one of the things it's like, uh, if, if you're invisible and it's, I say that casually, but you know, if it's hard for you to be highly visible, then that is a, a hurdle for those of us that are happy to, um, hop in front of a camera or a microphone. It's, it's a little different. All right. All right. Well, I will, uh, you know, we'll, we'll wrap it up there, but, uh, I want to thank you for, uh, taking the time. It's, uh, been, been, uh, too long since we've, uh, had a chat. Yeah. It's good talking to you again. And, uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll start bumping into each other at, uh, events on the road again soon. Like I said, I won't be in Vegas for Black Hat DEF CON. I will be in Vegas later this year. Uh, yeah, the big goal is to make it to, uh, Frankie's 11th, 12th, 13th birthday party. It's early December. I assume they'll have a party. Uh, but, um, you know, smaller crowds, but it's, we're getting back. Be safe. Uh, and good talking to you. Yeah. I'll, I'll be, uh, I'll, I'll hold you to that. We're going to meet up at Frankie's and, uh, drink some rum infused, uh, drinks yeah. in them. Sounds good. All right. Later. Bye. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, 
uh, questions that you'd like to see answered in future posts.